This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to a new Bunker Daily. I'm Roz Taylor. We're all waiting for a COVID-19 vaccine, or are we? Only half of Britain surveyed by King's College London say they definitely or be very likely to get a vaccine. And with me to talk about why so many of us are worried about it is Professor Heidi Larson, an anthropologist at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine and director of the Vaccine Confidence Project. She specialises in how to build public trust in health interventions. Heidi, welcome to the bunker. Good morning. Let's start with the thinking of anti-vaxxers. You might be okay with the idea of a vaccine, but deeply wary of having it yourself. So you see the benefits to society, but you just don't want to take what you perceive as that risk yourself. What reasons do people give when you ask them why they're unhappy? We see three dominant themes globally, although they're highly varied locally. The first one is safety. Safety is often a concern. We also have, we call it safety, liberty, and purity. Liberty is the protest movements going on now about, I don't want the government to tell me what to do. And that goes back to the libertarian roots of the anti-vaccine movements in the late 1800s, which was all about, it was really about anti-compulsory vaccine rather than just anti-vaccine. So there's still a very strong thread. And frankly, in the context of COVID, this has become an even bigger sentiment in the public is this anti-government control one. So there are genuine concerns about safety. Some of them are often amplified anxieties, bigger than the real risk. And then there are people with just alternative beliefs, beliefs in, in pure, natural, don't interfere with God's plan, don't interfere with Mother Nature. And, and that's there are some very strong belief-based groups that have alternative approaches to health. So it's almost not an anti-vaccine, it's a pro-something else. You use the term vaccine hesitancy in your work. Is that how we should all try to talk about it, to avoid language that might seem to condemn the other side or other people? Well, I do think we need to move away from what has become a severe polarization of anti and pro. I mean, hesitancy doesn't capture the full spectrum. That's why my research group has been looking at it for a decade now in terms of confidence. You can have 0% confidence and you can have 100% confidence. I think if we do use the term hesitancy, it does at least reflect that there is some 
ambiguity, um, some uncertainty, and some reasonable questioning, particularly first-time parents. It's okay to ask questions about vaccines. And I think some of these mothers have talked to me and said, we feel demonized by this anti-vaccine sentiment, because when we open our mouths to ask a question, we get judged as being one of one of them. So I think we need to be much more open to conversations about vaccines, to questions, to some hard questions. And I think that that's where it's become quite uncomfortable for some people in the health community. They're not used to being challenged in the way they are now. I definitely would encourage more attention to the reasonable uncertainty that some parents and individuals might have. One of the interesting things about the King's research I mentioned earlier was that it suggests that it's now young people who are more hesitant than older ones. So 22% of under 35s definitely or very likely wouldn't get a vaccine. Why is it that we're seeing this scepticism among younger people? Well, I think for one thing, um, they have much more access and, and fluency in social media. They go to places online and through their networks that I think older people are not using as frequently. So they also are exposed to a lot of the worst of the extreme negative as well as more genuine and positive information. And what role is WhatsApp playing in this? Because obviously WhatsApp and Instagram are more often used by younger people. We see Facebook attracting an older demographic. What's going on in in the closed channels effectively of WhatsApp when it comes to vaccine misinformation? Well, I think that, as you rightly say, there's different demographics use different platforms. Also, I mean, our work is quite global. So we have, you know, depending on the country, depending on the region, we're looking at a lot of different platforms. But things don't live on one platform. They jump. And very few people are dedicated to, you know, what's up because that's the most useful and accessible and doesn't require sitting in, you know, uh, internet I would say that, I mean, I think that's one thing we've missed in a lot of the social media analyses. There has been a disproportionate amount of studies on Twitter, and that's really because Twitter from very early days has made uh, anonymized, randomized data available to researchers, unlike Facebook and others who have been much more, and what's up it's much more closed, closed to research access. From a public perspective, you know, these Facebook and Twitter is much more open. But the biggest thing we've learned is these sentiments don't live in closed circles. They will be exchanging some things there, but, you know, in some places you'll see people taking a screenshot from WhatsApp and posting it on their Facebook page. These things jump platforms. And from a from a public confidence point of view, particularly in terms of misinformation and negative information, it's the pieces that jump across platforms which are more concerning because they have more impact. Would you like to see social media channels taking more action? Facebook has made kind of small moves towards tackling a degree of vaccine misinformation. But is there a case for 
much more serious intervention on their part? Well, I wouldn't t- say th- small moves. They, um, I do a lot with Facebook. They, to their credit, reach out to a number of researchers and academics to give insights and analysis. They've hired a tremendous number of people to specifically work on this area, uh, particularly more so in, in the recent years. There's always more that they can do, not to be an apologist for Facebook. I think I think they are doing a lot. Uh, there's always more you can do. But I, as I mentioned in my previous comment about the, these sentiments don't live on one platform, if Facebook closed their doors tomorrow, these sentiments would not go away. They've been a very popular and widely used platforms, a platform that has definitely played a role in in the amplification of risk, but they're absolutely not the only one now. And there are a lot more options now than when Facebook opened its doors in 2006. But they're also walking a line between on the one hand, you know, aren't supposed to go into private spaces and supposed to respect privacy. On the other hand, they have governments and others wagging their finger at Facebook to say, clean up the negative stuff. And then you get UN Human Rights Commission saying, whoa, wait a minute, governments can't be telling private sector, you know, to be censoring things because that's an abuse of, you know, right to information. There's a lot of things you have to take into consideration here. So speaking of governments, is it the government's responsibility ultimately to, if you like, sell vaccines, to instill confidence in them? It is a responsibility of certainly ministries of health and in the case of COVID, which affects all sectors. Right now, many governments are not very trusted. So if government alone is the only advocate of vaccines, we're going to be in worse trouble than we are now. Um, I think what we actually need is a more diverse group of entities to be kind of embracing the positive attributes and the value of vaccines in ways that hasn't really been in their orbit, as it were. And I think with COVID, never have we had such a compelling case for why vaccines matter to let people go back to work, back to school, back to their social lives, back to travel. So I think we should use this opportunity with COVID to remind people of the value of, of vaccines in across multiple domains in life. So what sort of bodies would be doing that job then that you spoke of that aren't government, strictly speaking, government bodies? I wouldn't necessarily call it a job, but I think that from a kind of not just a public health, but from their own, like, um, let's say, so the meatpacking industry, really hardly hit by COVID. One of the worst hit, I mean, in terms of infection rate. And I think a number of different religious groups also, I mean, Hajj, for instance, millions of pilgrims normally go to Mecca for an annual religious pilgrimage. It was stopped this year because of COVID. What the Hajj pilgrimage has have done for other infectious diseases is they have some pretty strict requirements on vaccines you need every, you know, all the time, like meningitis and certainly polio. 
uh, because two of the large Muslim populations come from the, the last uh, areas where polio still circulates. And then, of course, frontline health workers, health institutions, but they're the ones that are already, um, in principle, encouraging vaccination. Uh, education system, universities, uh, depending on the vaccine. Yeah, it's it's pretty. And I actually think that the school system, education system, should we really need to be bringing much more awareness and understanding of what do vaccines do, how are they made from very early school years? Because I'm constantly struck at how little people really understand vaccines. I mean, frankly, some of the things I hear about the perceptions of what it does to your system are so um, incorrect. <laughs> um, and these are not necessarily anti-vaccine people. These are people, you know, talking to their friends about what this vaccine can do to you uh, without really getting it. Yeah. And and that, I think, is the failure of the education and public health system in communicating better. I wanted to ask you about that because you've done research among Polish migrants in Scotland, I think, who refused the flu vaccine for their children. Um, what did you find? What insights did that give you into what they were thinking? Well, I think one of the biggest insights in that work is the amount of communication migrant or minority groups um, have with their home countries. Uh, because Poland is one of the countries in Europe where we do biannual uh, confidence research across the 28 EU states for the European Commission. And between 2015 and 2018, Poland had the biggest drop in confidence of all the 28 countries. And they have a very strong, highly organized anti-vaccine group. And some of those sentiments are clearly going through the Polish press, Polish social media networks, and we're seeing it influence not just in Scotland, in the UK. We've seen it in a couple other communities uh, in other countries. We also have seen it in different kinds of uh, language speaking, the Somali migrant groups in multiple countries have been very anxious about the MMR vaccine because the word started spreading about MMR and autism risks, the rumor, as it were, that still persists, even though that suggestion of a connection has been debunked. And that's traveled. It, it's affected uh, migrant groups in, in Sweden, in the UK, in in uh, the U.S., uh, because there there are language groups, language diasporas, so we have we should be paying attention to those also. So there are some schools in the U.S. that have refused to educate children unless they have their vaccines in the past. Uh, is your approach more education than if than, than threatening to withhold public education? It's not so much refusing education as refusing gatherings of people. You can homeschool. It's not like you're being refused education, but you're not allowed to participate in a group. And I think that that often gets lost. Uh, mandatory vaccination is not so much for individuals, for the individuals themselves, but in situations 
like school, like daycare, uh, in uh, hospitals and health facilities, places where there are high-risk situations for the spread of an infectious disease and where there are vaccines, that's those are situations where vaccines come. I know it's a tension because there are many parents who don't want to get children vaccinated and think that they should have a right for them to go to school. I understand the tension and the perception that it means my child, you certainly don't get the socialization aspect that you get in a group classroom. One thing we've learned with COVID is how much you can do online. If you do have a child with some underlying condition that's not allowed to be vaccinated, um, I mean, medically is not okay, of course they can go to school. But they also, I mean, it's for situations like that too, where these kids rely on other the other ones in the class having gotten vaccinated to create that group uh, protection. So the reason I'm, I'm asking really is because no doubt this is going through the minds of people in the NHS, people in Public Health England or whatever body follows on from Public Health England now it's being abolished. Should we make vaccines compulsory for education in, in, in state schools in Britain. And I think it's particularly pertinent because I know of one family who, after COVID, for various reasons of their own, have now decided to completely homeschool their daughters. And it is something that is thinkable for them in a way that it wasn't before. So it's a, it, I, I think it's, do you, do you think it's a risk that people having homeschooled their kids for nearly six months now, many of them, are now more willing to do that, and it's less of a less of a fear for them. And you might see increasing numbers of people dropping out of the system for that reason if they are forced to to get a vaccine. I think you can come out of the um, COVID situation either, on the one hand, appreciating what you can do online, but I think a lot of parents are also quite relieved that kids you know, for kids to go to school, um, because, you know, it, it gives, you know, because uh, particularly for parents who, who work, usually at least one works and, and in many cases, both work. So while I do appreciate, they do know what it means in ways that they didn't before. Um, it is a possibility. It depends on how that went at home <laughs> and the implications for work, because, the other thing about COVID is that because of the situation, parents also worked at home. So they didn't have the tension of having to go to work and find someone to, to be with their children at home. Yeah. For the moment, the flu vaccine is the first line of defense of the NHS as we get towards the winter. Uh, are you confident enough of enough people will take it this winter? I'm more confident than I would have been if you had asked me that a month ago. <laughs> And the reason is because we just got our 2020 data in in our EU research and across pretty consistently across all 28 countries, confidence in the importance of flu vaccine has gone up significantly. I thought there might be a slight increase, but is is much more of an increase than I would have expected. So the flu vaccine is a more familiar vaccine. They probably feel less uncertainty than they do with the COVID vaccine because we still don't know what the effectiveness and safety of 
a COVID vaccine will be. But uh, I think the flu vaccine is familiar enough that they're willing to take it. And now there's a, an additional motive, motivation for them to take it. And that is one, the health systems are totally stressed. The likelihood of them, if they do get a serious flu illness, is going to be challenging. And worst case scenario, if they were to have the flu and COVID, it is much higher risk for serious illness and mortality. So I think for those reasons, particularly older people will be more motivated to get the vaccine. Population-wide, I'm, I'm not so sure, particularly for younger people, but I think we will have more demand on the system. The question is, is the system ready for it? <laughs> Would you like to see Boris Johnson or Rishi Sunak, for example, setting an example by making it known that their kids have had vaccinations? Does that help to persuade people if high-profile individuals and celebrities endorse vaccinations? Absolutely, if they're willing. I mean, we saw the we saw the opposite effect with the MMR vaccine when uh, Tony Blair did not say uh, whether his son was vaccinated or, or his child was vaccinated by the MMR vaccine or not, and that didn't help at all. Um, in fact, it created more anxiety in the public. So I I think that. Leaders can make a difference. Um, I mean, for the hardline negative people, it may not switch their minds, but it certainly uh, can help. Heidi, thanks so much for talking to us. Thanks very much. We'll be back tomorrow with another Bunker Daily. And if you want to help us keep podcasting, you could back us on Patreon, the crowdfunding platform. You'll get every episode ad-free on the night before general release if we can get it finished in time. Search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find the details. We'll see you tomorrow. The Bunker Daily was presented by Ross Taylor and produced by Andrew Harrison. The assistant producer was Jacob Archbold and audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production.